I need to start in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and uh, just kind of let you know where we are going. Today, we talk about worthy worship, and we are talking about identifying, declaring, proclaiming the one who is worthy of worship. And so, are we on? Here we go. We all individually and collectively worship something. As the prophet Bob Dylan said, you're going to serve somebody. It may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And the book of Revelation is about that. There is a, there is a choice that's being made, and it's a holy choice. It's an important choice. It's an eternal choice. And the Scripture begins with uh, 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 where we have already been in, in chapter 1 where John is introduced and, and the fact that this is a vision that is given to him by none other than Jesus Christ and that through that vision God will communicate how the world is going to unfold even to the end of time. And then in chapter 2 and chapter 3 there were some very practical words given to churches. Uh, very uh, understandable words, very, okay, I can see myself in that kind of words. Whether that's you've lost your first love or whether that's uh, turn away from sexual immorality and idol worship, uh, uh, focus your attention on the one who is bringing this vision. And today our, 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 our focus shifts, our, our location shifts, our, our geography shifts, and we move from earth to heaven. And quite frankly, most of us would love to stay in these practical matters. We, we would love to stay in this, in this region where, okay, I can understand, he's fussing at us pretty hard. He's getting on to us as he talks about the churches, but I understand what he's saying. It's now in chapter 4 and 5 and, and all the way through chapter 19 that the, that the imagery gets very uh, cryptic, that the, that the uh, uh, language gets very symbolic. And we're going to talk about that a good bit today. But first, hang on to this. Our worship matters. Our worship every day, the decisions that we make from the time even before we open our eyes until the time that we have closed them, every choice matters because every choice reflects our worship. Every choice reflects what we have placed as priority. Every, every decision that we make it either directs us into a, a zone where God is glorified or into a zone where He's not. Unfortunately, there's not gray area. The, the word lukewarm that he applied to Laodicea, that's, that's almost unfortunate because in God's economy, there is no middle ground. We have either made the choice that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and our, our, our decisions reflect that, or they don't. And that's what this is about. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 13. We don't want you to lose heart or be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who are dead. Because you don't have to grieve like others who have no hopes, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again... 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. For because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep, for the Lord himself will descend with heaven, from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who were left, will be caught up together, and we will meet him in the clouds, meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So today we move from earth to heaven. We move from concrete language to symbolic language. We move from the, the practical to the visionary because the Apostle John is now uh, being caught up into heaven, and, and he says this. Now, a major thought that I just I, I want to get on and get off of, there are lots of folks who believe that this is the marker in Revelation that indicates when the, uh, the, the, when the events in 1 Thessalonians 4 will happen. The word rapture is not used in the New Testament anywhere, but that's, that's the, the thought that there is a, a catching up of those who are of faith, the, of the church. The word church is not mentioned anymore in Revelation after chapter 3. And so many take that to be the assumption that that's when that catching up takes place, that, that, that before the great tribulation, the, 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 the tribulation, the, the period of intense suffering that the Bible assigns a, a seven-year uh, time period to. I, I don't hold to time periods because you know how I feel about trying to guess times or seasons. I've said before I'm in Acts 1-7 uh, when it comes to the end of the world, they asked Jesus when it was going to happen. He said, it's none of your business. And I kind of hold to that. I, but, but what we do know is that it will happen. We know that the day of the Lord will happen. We know that there will be a, a time of great suffering on earth that, that, that will happen. We know that there will be a time when the church is caught up, when, there, when, when, when we are called to heaven, whether we are, are in this life or whether this life is over for us. We know that there will be a time sometime after that where there's a, a time of great suffering. We know that at the end of that time of great suffering that Jesus will come back victorious to do battle with evil, and we know that evil will be judged. And the soup that we're swimming in, Robert's going to talk about that in just a minute. The, the soup that we're swimming in is a soup of unbelief people who don't believe in God, much less in Jesus. And so we are talking about these times that will come, and we pick up in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open to heaven. Now, I don't have the Scripture up there because there's so many of it. And by the way, Revelation told us to read it out loud, so I'm going to do that. He said, after this I looked, behold, a door is standing open in heaven. So John is now caught up in this vision. We don't know if he was caught up to heaven or if it was a vision. Paul said the same thing in Corinthians. I, I don't know if I was caught up to heaven or if it was a vision. None of that matters. It was real. This was God speaking. And so Jesus has given him this vision, and he says he was caught up to heaven after this, after the letters to the churches, after this, this time of practical, as a matter of fact, chapter 4 through 19 is this one long description 
of God and His glory and all of the ways that He will judge the evil in humanity. And then we take it right up to chapter 20 and 21 and 22 where the the king returns. So the rest of Revelation right up to chapter 20 is talking about this thing we call the tribulation. But he first wants to say, let's be clear here. If we know that the hard times are coming, what do we do in the meantime? We worship. So the door is standing open, access is granted, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, the trumpet that was mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. A few weeks ago, John Hume was preaching, and he talked about the call to post at the Kentucky Derby. When everybody hears that trumpet, they know exactly what it means. They know exactly where to put their attention. They know exactly where to look, exactly what to expect, and that's what the Scripture is telling us. When there is a trumpet call that is heavenly, we know that the Lord is getting busy, that there are things that are going on that we better pay attention to. The trumpet calls. So he says to John, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. This is going to unfold. It's not unfolding yet. Some of it is, but it's not unfolding yet. Some of it unfolded from John's time to our time, but not all of it. After this, he said, I was in the Spirit. And I saw a throne with one seated on the throne. I saw a throne with one seated on the throne. I heard a trumpet. Now, in just a minute, we're going to roll a video. Robert has spent a lot of time with this. And uh, he was supposed to preach today, but the, the spirit was willing, but the leg was weak. And, uh, and so we recorded a, a, an interview with him earlier this week where he could sort of unpack this language of the throne. But I, but I want to make this one point before I walk off. We have in our mind a lot of stuff about heaven. We think that our loved ones are there. We think that there are streets of gold, whatever that means. We think that there are spaces, mansions, whatever you want to call them. We, we think that there is some kind of setup for us that indicates that Jesus has gone before us and He's made a place for us. We think all of that. We think that there are angels. And in our child's mind, we think there are clouds and the angels play on the clouds. John probably knew all that as well. And yet, all he could describe when he really saw a vision of heaven was the throne. All he could see was God. All he could see was the Almighty One, the Eternal One, seated on the throne. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 cannot be separated. They have to be read as a unit. It's kind of like you that have the real expensive phones. You open it up and it's the whole thing. Four is what's called a theophany, a a manifestation. God shows up on the throne. And chapter five is called a Christophany. Christ shows up as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And as you're looking at the scriptures, as Robert talks, I want you to pay special attention to the five songs of praise that are sung throughout. 
And I'll talk about those in just a minute. Chapter 4, God, creator, judge. Chapter 5, Jesus, lamb, slain, redeemer. Creator, redeemer, the whole of God's story. Watch the video. I'm Gary McIntyre. It's my privilege to be here with our worship pastor at Dinwiddie Baptist Church, Robert Como, uh, and we're going to talk about what worthy worship is in the context of the book of Revelation. Yes, and I think what's really great about what we're going to be doing today is looking at who is worship worthy, the one who's seated on the throne. All right, Robert, so far, uh, John, in this uh, study of Revelation, John has talked about the settings of the vision that he's been given, and he talked about the churches. Part of the admonition to the churches was to worship Jesus and not the emperor or any other pagan cult for that matter. What are your thoughts on that transition? Well, I think, first of all, we have to recognize the fact that chapters 4 and 5 really set up kind of the formal revelation of Jesus. Um, we've had this introduction, certainly the beginning, Jesus is speaking uh, there in the, the first chapter, first couple of chapters, and then he speaks to the churches. But right here, we get an actual revelation that happens. And so um, we've had this introductory material with the churches, but now we get this huge, huge shift through a door into the throne room. And I just think that is an incredible picture that we have, and it's a picture of the presence of the fullness of God. That's what we see here is the fullness of God, and John is brought into the throne room of the one who is seated on the throne. In fact, he's not called the Father in this passage. Uh, he is referred to as the one seated on the throne, the one on the throne, and at the same time, we have this picture of the triune God, the Spirit. He is brought in the Spirit. So he says, I was brought in the Spirit to this place. And then he comes into the throne room of the Father. We understand that to be the Father, the one who is seated on the throne. And then we get this incredible entrance of the Son, the Lamb of God. And so in the midst of all this, we get this description of God that is beyond his understanding. And, and I think what he's done is he's taken gems and jewels to kind of describe the colors that he's seen. But really, I, I think he can't even describe it. And it's funny, when I was uh, in college, I went to Key West at the end of my freshman year of college with my roommate. We just took an end of the year trip. We're going to drive down to Key West. We did a snorkeling trip where we took a boat an hour out. We sailed an hour out off of Key West and went out to this reef, and it was just these giant, like, uh, trenches, and you'd snorkel down into it, and I just remember the way I described it to people afterwards. I said, I think I got a little bit, like, the slightest taste of what happened to John in the book of Revelation when he saw this, and I know I didn't even touch the surface of it, but I saw colors and, and like the, the sea creatures and the fish and all this stuff were colors I'd never seen before and haven't seen since. And the, the, the way it was all like surreal, I'd never experienced that before. And it was like this little taste of, of uh, 
something I you, you've never seen. And I think John got that times a billion. I think John walks into the throne room of heaven and he's like, well, that green was like emerald, but I, I'm not exactly sure. And the throne is encircled by rainbow. Just the color is just brilliant color. And so we get this incredible description of the scene of heaven and he's just blown away. Right. Cause I, I... I was just reading that a few minutes ago, and the more and more I'm reading it, and it's exactly like you just said. Uh, it's just like he's almost like piling on. It's like, and I saw this, and then I saw this, and right. I saw this, and I saw this, and it's just so mind-blowing. But I think if you sum it all up and it just it, – it's, it's very basic. It's all about the splendor of God. He's trying to describe that, and how can you describe that to begin with? And finally, he just gets to a point where it's like the angels around the throne do that for him, and it's just like holy, holy, yes, holy. Exactly. It's all right there. So there's a lot of symbolism in this passage. Well, there's a lot of symbolism in the whole book. The whole book, right? right? And so, but in this case, we have like, there's just like numbers everywhere, 24 of this and 24 of that. Yeah. You have some thought about all these numbers in this section? Yeah, that was an interesting thing that kind of jumped out off the page. And if you have a King James Bible and want to look at that in the King James or pull that up on your computer, you'll notice that like when he refers to the elders, it's the four and 20 elders that actually is reflective of the Greek text, which is written in that way, four and 20. But four is actually one of the critical symbols in the book of Revelation. Four actually is a, is a number of completion, and it's, it's the earthly number of completion. There are historically referred to the four corners of the earth. You think north, south, east, and west, right? There's this completion on earth that is four. And we see that number four. How many living creatures are there in the text? There are four living creatures. And so there's this idea of, of uh, four. Then you have, as I mentioned before, the Trinity. You have God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And you take those two together. And that, by the way, is, is the sort of heavenly perfection, completion. You put those two numbers together and you get seven. Seven is that number of completion in Scripture. And all throughout the book of Revelation, we see seven over and over and over again. And so there, there is a lot to, to understand, to draw out from that. But I think what's really important is that we look beyond the, just the pure numbers and understand what it is that, that they're there for. And so, for example, the elders, the 24 elders, what are they doing? They all have their own thrones, but they are falling before the throne of the one on the throne. And they're saying these words, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. That's significant. They said you created. This order isn't just haphazard. He created this order. And by your will, they were created and have their being. So we get this pointing to the creator God who is worthy. He is worthy. That is the important feature of all of this. So in the middle of all these numbers and all this splendor and all these lights that John is trying to describe, there is a throne. And you've already alluded to it a little bit that the throne represents the one who's on it, the one who's worthy of worship. Uh it, it also, to me, represents this idea that John is getting a vision of something just to show that 
everything that's about to happen from this point forward isn't by accident, that there is someone in control over this. So let's, let's talk about the, the throne a little bit. Yeah. Uh, so just for fun, I want to challenge the people watching this. If you would just go in your Bible, underline or highlight every time you see the word throne. And if you'll do that in the, uh, in the original text, even sometimes when it refers to it, it even still says the word throne. That word actually appears 13 times in 11 verses, 13 times. So you kind of get the idea that it's a pretty significant feature in this passage. And again, what this is pointing to is the worthiness of the one who is on the throne. Again, there are 24 thrones all around his throne with 24 elders, people of significance who are in their place for a reason around his throne, and they are falling before him in worship. And he is seated on the throne. He is the worthy one. And so that is the the primary image that we're left with God the Father. He's not referred to as the Father in this passage, in fact. He is the worthy one. He is the creator. All right, so the one sitting on the throne, in his hand, he was holding a scroll. Turns out that has very special significance for the rest of what's about to happen. Can you go into some detail about what that scroll represents? Sure. Yeah, the the significance of these scrolls is that they are also a symbol of completion. Now, something interesting, it says they were written on on both sides, and that's very unusual for scrolls. In fact, the only other place that we see that in the Bible is the scroll that Ezekiel was given to eat. And Ezekiel, also a passage much like this, that was a prophetic passage, a, a scene where he experienced God in heaven, and he was given these scrolls written on both sides. The significance of that is those are complete scrolls. There's nothing that's going to be added or taken away from those scrolls. So these are complete scrolls. But the other piece that we have in this is that the contents of the scrolls are going to be laid out in the coming chapters by the one who's able to break the seal and open those scrolls. There's something, they are sealed up, and only one person can open those scrolls. And once again, what does it point to? worthiness. Jesus is the only one who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scrolls. And it's because those scrolls represent the completion of the work of God's redemption for mankind. So we broke things with our sin, right? We messed up God's plan, but his plan all along was to send his son to redeem us. Well, these scrolls are like the deed of our redemption, basically, that he has bought with his blood. He's bought this deed, and in order for that to be fulfilled, it has to be opened, and these things have to take place in order for our restoration to the only one who is worthy. So that's the significance of these scrolls. Right, and so you had mentioned that the one worthy to open the scroll. Now that kind of set John off because the question was asked, who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one stood up to do it. And so he started weeping until 
the lamb enters the lamb. into the picture. That's right. And you said that the, the section is really the beginning of the revelation. It reveals the lamb who is ultimately the, the author, the subject, and the person we worship in the whole book. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah. The lamb, this is another, and once again, another word. I'd love for you just to go and circle that in a different color. Look at how many times in chapter 5 the lamb is described in those words. We've heard already in the first part of Revelation the name Jesus Christ. So we've been introduced to Jesus. We've been introduced to Jesus as the sacrifice as well, as the one who, who gave himself up for us. But this passage only refers to the lamb. It's actually a term of endearment, a term of endearment from his father who loves his son so much because his son gave his life for his creation. And so he uses this term, the lamb, to describe his son because he is the sacrifice. It's all about the lamb. Now, it's interesting. I just read last week, there's a study done by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway every two years, and they sort of assess where is America theologically. And they, I saw that. Did you see that? I did. I was at a Ligonier conference just this past weekend, and they actually showed that. I got the website and you, everything. Okay, so do you remember that statistic? The percentage of Christians who believe that Jesus, listen to this, they said Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. These are evangelical Christians who believe that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43%. 43%. That's where we are today in America. People who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, don't believe in his deity. And I think this passage right here absolutely just points us where we need to go to reverse this absolutely disturbing trend. Because all it does is say, first of all, he is worthy, but the worthy one has pointed to his son and said, this one is worthy, and they all speak those words of him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. And that worth on Jesus is all about the fact that, yes, he is fully God, and he entered humanity to redeem us. And so to truly be able to worship God, we have to understand the worthiness of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain. And I want us to really understand that. In order to truly worship him, we have to understand the worthiness of the lamb. Right, because we're talking about not just worship, but worthy worship. Uh, so given the climate of worship, that the climate of worship today is very much like the climate of worship among the seven churches, what is the message for the church today? I think the message for us today is that message that we have to understand the worthiness of Christ, and we have to step into a place of worship that helps us to see that. And I want to tell you another story that will help illustrate that, something that I experienced a couple of years ago, uh, maybe about two to three years ago. Um, we sing this song, Is He Worthy? And it's a song that uh, that literally just tells the story of Revelation 5 and brings us into that place of the, seal, the, the sealed scrolls and who is worthy. 
And it asks that question, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scrolls? And we are presented with the Lamb of God. And I was listening to that song after it had come out in my office, kind of getting ready to just lead the song. And I'm sitting at my keyboard and I'm playing and it just, God just started stirring in my heart. I can't explain what took place really in, in good human words, because all I can say is God was present there. And I got away from my piano and just listened to the song. I put it on repeat and fell on my knees in my office and I wept. I mean, just like John, when he was weeping because he, when they asked the question said, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scrolls? He was weeping there because he understood how important it was that we have that redemption, someone who could release us from our sin. And all of the weight of that, plus the worthiness of the lamb, something about the way that was conveyed in a song just gripped my heart. And I was on the floor weeping. And y'all, I've, I've done that twice in my life in worship. The other time related to Isaiah chapter six, which happens to be another passage where we see the throne room of God. There is something significant about in our heart and in our spirit, just like he did here in the spirit, he went into the throne room in our heart and in our spirit, entering into the throne room of God, where he is seated on the throne and where his son is seated at his right hand. The lamb of God who was slain is seated at his right hand. And I just believe that that is critical to our worship life is, and our relationship with him is understanding the worthiness of our father who is seated on the throne and the worthiness of his son. And at the same time, by the power of his spirit, entering into that place. So we have talked about trying too hard to maybe push Revelation, the book, into practical advice. Uh, I'm wondering if maybe this, what we're talking about here, is one of those places where we can't really have a, a what do we do kind of approach, but maybe we take this as a way to simply acknowledge and worship the one who's on that throne. Or maybe that is the what do we do takeaway from this part of the passage. What are your thoughts? I think so. I think, first of all, understand this, that the lamb, the lamb is the key to unlocking the worship of the one who is worthy. The lamb is the key to unlocking that worship. So worthy is the lamb who was slain. We need to make that a regular word on our lips, make that part of our practice. But as our pastor talked about last week, returning to our first love, um, or a couple weeks ago, the church of Ephesus needed to return to their first love. The first step in returning to our first love is to enter into his presence, his throne room through worship. And so I think as a practical step, what I would challenge us to do here is something that I actually just learned a year ago when I took sabbatical. I, I read a book on praying the scripture, and 
this is where it actually started in praying the scripture was the throne room scenes of heaven. So Isaiah 6, as I talked about, there's Ezekiel who saw the wheel, those things. But this passage, I think, is the best starting point. Just read Revelation 4 and 5 as our pastor just read it today and just allow yourself in the spirit to be transported into his presence, the presence of the only worthy one, and into the presence of the lamb who was slain. And allow yourself just to be in that place. And while you're in his presence, just to listen, not to bring your list of things. That's, that has its place. But there's a significant place for just coming into his presence and resting in that presence, being aware of his greatness that makes us so aware of how little we are and how much we have to give worth to him. It all goes to him uh, that he may increase, that we may decrease. That's the purpose of entering into his presence. And I think that's the practical piece that we can learn from Revelation 4 and 5. Man, that's a powerful word. Do you, uh, before we close this thing out, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I would just like to challenge all of us to make this a regular practice in our walk of faith. And we can begin right, right now because we're about to we, sing a song in a few minutes anyway, are. right? That's right. Absolutely. So this is a great place. In fact, we're going to sing, Is He Worthy? And I think that this is a place for us just to take some time. You may just stop and just listen to this song being sung over you right now and, and just be practice being in his presence right now. I think that's what we can all do. The choir is going to come and our band, and they're going to lead us in that. But it is a song of response. And so let me just sort of throw a couple of things out. Remember, at the very first of this passage, he said there is an open door. And if you have never received Christ as your Savior, if you're still trying to figure out what this Christian life is all about, I want to invite you to do one of three things. One, come find a pastor during this song. I'm sitting right down there. Number two, go to our connection corner that's right in the back as you leave the lobby and say, let me have a conversation about what it means to be in this number who anticipates greatly the throne. Or number three, just come to the Explore class that I was talking about, and we'll spend an hour or so talking about uh, what this might look like. Second response that I would throw out to you is to pray the prayers of Revelation. Many of you in your personal prayer time, you include a thing called adoration. And if you look at those five prayers, those five responses in Revelation, chapter 4 and 5, they, they sing of what was in that scroll. You heard Robert talk about it as a deed or a will, the will of God, the last will and testament of God, that his plan for creation, that none would perish, but all would be saved. And so pray the prayers of revelation in your time of adoration. 
the word prayer and incense, the song we sang a little while ago, day and night, night and day, let your, the incense arise. Uh, Revelation 5.8 says the incense is the prayers of the saints. Incense is the prayer of the saints. And then finally, don't fixate on the when or the how of how God is going to unfold all this. Just rest in the certainty that it will, that there is an accounting, and we are, 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 are singing these praise songs to the Lamb who was slain, the one whom John the Baptist said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's worship that Lamb. Let's let this just be a time, as we've said, just to be in His presence and uh, We've sung this before. This is a response. I want you to respond as I sing. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. And do you feel the shadows deepen? Do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? Oh, but is a new creation coming? And is the glory of the Lord to be? light within our midst is it good that we remind ourselves of this look to the worthy one is anyone worthy is anyone
on, sing with all you've got. for heaven this is practice for heaven and we've seen that scene in revelation 4 and 5 and i just want to extend that challenge to us today this week as you go about your week take some moments this week start your day this way open up your bible to revelation 4 and 5 and just read it out loud just read it out loud and just see what God does in that. See if God doesn't give you a moment where you fall on your feet and all you can do is just cry before him because he's worthy. There's just something about the word of God and the presence of God that comes through that. And as we go about our week this week, I wanna challenge us. Listen, throughout the world, there's been war in Ukraine. That war has now come to Israel as our pastor has said. We want to pray for people who are in that place, specifically with this. This is unique as well, just being that this is Israel. And uh, we just want to pray for them, pray for God's presence. And uh, I just, I hope that this week is just a week where God does a transformative work in each of our lives. God bless you and have a great week. And we'll see you next week.